Welcome to Animal Spirits, the podcast that takes a completely different look at markets and investing. Hosted by Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson, two guys who study the markets as a passion and invest for all the right reasons. Michael Batnick and Ben Carlson work for Ritholtz Wealth Management. All opinions expressed by Michael and Ben or any podcast guests are solely their own opinions and do not reflect the opinion of Ritholtz Wealth Management. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon for investment decisions. Clients of Ritholtz Wealth Management may maintain positions in the securities discussed in this podcast. Welcome to Animal Spirits with Michael and Ben. I'm staring at Ben trying to untangle his headphones. This is new. Yes, this is new because we're actually in the same room. For those of you who don't know, usually we're on opposite ends of the country, kind of. I'm in the Midwest and Michael's in New York City. And today we're both in Dana Point, California for our EBI West conference. That's right, Ben. We are indeed. So chart from last week from Ned Davis Research, households have $23.5 trillion of equity holdings. That is 40% of total household financial assets, and thus it is higher than the 1968 and 2007 peaks. Not quite as high as the 99 peak, but what do you make of this? Well, I think the craziest one here is the fact that in the 80s, household equities ownership was down to like 14%, which is, that's just crazy to me. But That's a good point. One of the stats that I repeat over and over is... After the 73, 74 bear market, there was 22 consecutive quarters of outflows, I think, until 1982. Okay. And I guess that's what this chart represents. Yeah. Well, I think the the idea here for a lot of people is you see the prior peaks before, and the fact that we're back to those levels means must mean doom. Well, right. But the also thing is that I think people overestimate, and I'm certainly guilty of this, how they're going to behave in the next bear market. Yes. But we underestimate how absolutely paralyzing and debilitating and psychologically traumatizing a bear market is. Did I say traumatizing twice? I... <laughs> <laughs> that was a lot of action. Yeah. But look, I mean, this chart is just a really great visual of that, that like, it's really, it's, you know, of course we think that we're going to be the exception, but I always say that stocks don't go down and then people sell. Stocks go down because people are selling. I think the other thing here is the fact that they're trying to show that 40% of household financial assets in stocks might be a scary level, but doesn't that seem low to you for now for the fact that people are living longer, people like need their retirement savings to make up for a shortfall in or hey, come on people are at Dow twenty four thousand. Let's <laughs> let's bowl up. Yes. What I'm not I guess we were talking about this earlier. We're not exactly clear what financial assets are, so I would think that real estate is is part of this. Yeah, it's I guess it's hard to say. Look I, I imagine it's someone can actually us on this if they want, but I, I imagine it's stocks, bonds, cash and it says it's adjusted for pension funds, but So you don't think real estate is included in a financial asset? I think it is. Okay. Which would explain why forty percent I think the fact I think that there's just a lot of bonds in cash in the world, and I think that is the majority of of what's driving this. All right, so there are a lot of bonds on the sidelines. <laughs> yes. So Robinhood is in talks with regulators to offer bank products, and a few a few interesting things in this in this article from Bloomberg. Robinhood has more than four million U.S. consumers using its free stock trading platform, and now it's in talks to offer other bank services. And the company is valued at $5.6 billion, which seems pretty high, but We talked about not? this last night after dinner, and I, I, I guess I don't really understand how they make money. I, I actually use Robinhood. I wrote about it a little bit. I just opened up a brokerage account with them probably two, three years ago just to try it out. It is a really cool little service. It's just an app on your phone. It's really easy to trade stocks. It's free. Having said that, it's free. And obviously, what they're trying to do here is build up a ton of users and then charge them more later, I think. And I, I know that they do charge some people for leverage. They actually have like a, instead of charging a percentage, they charge a flat fee to borrow money. 
Do they do advertising? <laughs> I don't. I don't. I doubt it. But they have a huge valuation. I think the the, the idea here is that people are hoping they'll become the banking service for millennials. And I guess that's probably why it has such a lofty valuation. And I could, I could actually could see that. Yeah, I'm sort of bullish on this company. I, I mean, admittedly, I don't know very much about it, but I like the idea because I think that a lot of younger people have no loyalty to Bank of America and Wells Fargo. As a matter of fact, they probably prefer not to bank with them. So if, if they can have Robinhood or just, I guess this is just like where corporations are going. And they, and they started trading crypto on here. I'm sure they're going to just offer a ton of stuff down the line. I don't know how you do a lot of that just in an app-based world, but I suppose that's how a lot of young people are used to doing things these days. Yeah, so maybe I guess I'm agnostic on evaluation because I don't know, but I'm bullish on like the idea of this type of company. Correct. I, I think too. I think it's I think it's an interesting idea, but I wouldn't be I guess surprised either way if that valuation continues to climb or it, it just gets slaughtered. So one uh, article that I saw this week, I think this one was from Reckon Thaler over at Morningstar, talking about collective investment trust, the invisible giant. And I have to admit, I do, I've never heard of a collective investment trust of you. I've heard of it. I thought it was kind of something from a bygone era, but it's huge still. And I think the idea, I looked it up a little bit. The idea behind it is if you pool a bunch of assets together from, say, a large company who has retirement funds, then by having more money in there, you can negotiate lower fees. And they pool these together. It's almost like a separately managed account, I guess, unless someone tells me differently that they pool together and they can put it in something like an index fund structure. And there's different, so they can pay less based on how many, how much assets are in the plan. So they have some buying power. And he was saying that by the end of this year, it's going to be $3 trillion in these, which for comparison's sake, US ETFs are like $3.5 So these things are enormous. Yeah. Which I think is another one of the reasons that the whole index ETF thing hasn't completely overwhelmed the market. I think people forget retirement assets in a lot of ways and how entre- just how entrenched they are. Like there's really not ETF options in a lot of 401ks. It's That's just not an easy thing to do. So I think the, the the reason that mutual funds are still probably going to do fine is because they're so entrenched in, in those types of plans where people are just constantly putting money in. Yeah, and it's going to take a generation, maybe more, for that to shift. Like, I, I, I mean, obviously, mutual funds are not going away. And I think that's one of the reasons that something like this is, is probably so big because it's just something people are constantly putting money into. So there's a good story in the New York Times a few weeks ago about dealing with an inconsistent income. And this is kind of an interesting topic from a personal finance perspective. And they actually they actually talk about very wealthy people, and and they actually profile like Clay Thompson of the Warriors, which is not really very you know relatable for a lot of people. But it's interesting from like an entrepreneur standpoint or someone who has inconsistent income. Like, how do they plan on things like budgeting and saving and handling their personal finances when income comes in? You know. In in big big chunks, and sometimes it doesn't come in at all uh, over certain times. So this was an interesting story. They interviewed a guy who gives advice to these type of people that have these inconsistent incomes, and one of the things that he said that was really interesting was, "quote What I realized is you cannot scare the one in a million guy who already beats the odds. You can't give them the stats about athletes going broke because they say that's not going to be me. Everyone already told them they weren't going to make it, right? And that's just like a, a matter of being young and making a ton of money. You can't tell these people anything." Right. And I was kind of pointing to this too as, as not just, just beyond these athletes. It's really tough if you're dealing with that from just a regular person perspective and how you deal with inconsistent income. So this could be people who sort of work on their own and don't really have a consistent paycheck they're getting. So how do you plan for that? And how do you how do you deal with inconsistent income? And I guess it's kind of like people who receive bonuses or, or just extra income. How do you plan for something like that in your own finances and not just blow it all when it comes in? Yeah, it is interesting. People feel differently about different sources of money. Like a bonus is sort of like house money, and yes. you're just more likely to spend it. 
one of the golfers said that he is concentrating on saving and having enough insurance and being prepared for the financial demands of being a father. Quote, if you're short of money, it puts a lot of extra pressure on your game. And I thought that was really applicable to people that trade for a living. Oh, yeah, that's a good point. Right? Like it just it screws with you mentally. Yes, which can then impact your trading ability. And then, yeah, there's so much pressure on you. Yeah, that, that's got to be a tough leap to make where you finally reach that point where you say, I'm going to trade for a living and this is going to be how I make money. Like, that's just an added element in there of the emotions, which is kind of well, like. I thought that I was going to do that. Right. And I was like, if I could just make 130% a year, that'll be fine. <laughs> right. And how long were you just trading, right? For a year or two, right? I think about two years. Yeah. Right. And that was kind of your job. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's what you, it like. It, it probably makes you push things a little more too, right? And make more trades or try to like try to improve your performance by doing something yeah, and imagine you have to feed a family yes yeah that's that's uh that's tough so there's another one in new york times the past week and they they did a, a survey for us and it's kind of interesting speaking of the sort of entrepreneurial lifestyle they said a new survey of people who have built significant wealth on their own found that money has actually brought them a lot of happiness and they what they find is that people who kind of create the money themselves and start a business can be more content with that money than than otherwise. So it's actually do, is a form of happiness for them, creating a lot of wealth on their own instead of just inheriting it or or, yeah. or building it, or getting lucky, I guess. And yeah, there's a huge bridge between wealthy people that did it on their own versus like next generation that grew up with it. Yes, which it's interesting from from our business perspective because a lot there are definitely a lot of people who are coming into the financial advice giving industry. And they've spent their entire lives building a business, and then they're selling out of it or handing it off to the next generation and getting this huge chunk of money. And for them, it's kind of kind of difficult to let go of that control because their whole life they've been it's been built up to this moment, and they've done this business, and then they have to turn the keys over to someone else to make the financial decisions in their life, which is not always an easy thing. Yeah. All right. Here's a, a statistic that gets thrown around every day: ten thousand baby boomers are turning sixty-five every day. Which means then the next step in the fact is that 10,000 baby boomers are going to be retiring every day for the next, I think that's at, what, 18 years or something? Can that even be? It's such. It sounds like such a ridiculous number. You were trying to call this one out. I can't do the math in my head, but... So there's close to 80 million baby boomers. All right. <laughs> Hold on a sec. <laughs> we're going to cut in with a little bit of... So this is from an article from investors.com and they gave this they gave this stat because it's for this new ETF. And so this is from Investor Business Daily. And this new ETF said it aims to provide a steady 7% a year payout to retirees. And that that's kind of where the stat came from and the 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 meaning behind it is a lot of retirees are going to have a hard time figuring out how to withdraw money and then this ETF is going to provide a steady return stream to these people so they have their spending taken care of. All right, breaking. I can't do the math, but somebody check this. 10,000 turning 65 every day? Yes. All right. Well, this gets back to a conversation that it's had all the time where I think that one of the the many reasons why people are less concerned with beating the market is like when you're 42 years old, you probably view investing a lot differently than when you're 65 at 42. Maybe beating the market appeals to a lot of people. And then once you have done everything that you needed to do and you saved money, you're much less concerned with still beating the market and you're much more concerned with spending and taxes and everything, like like the real things, which is basically, am I going to be okay? But what do you think about the idea behind... So it says this ETF, it's called 
Strategy Shares NASDAQ 7 Handle Index ETF, which is kind of weird. It rolls right off the tongue. Yeah, it's kind of a bizarre name. But it says this ETF says it's the first designed to pay investors a consistent monthly distribution. That distribution should equal 7% of the fund's net asset value at the end of the year. So, and it's basically going to take like a 50-50 approach to stocks and bonds. And I think... And with a little bit of leverage. Use a little bit of leverage to make it a little more doable in terms of getting to that 7%. And by the way, I think people hear leverage and they're like, oh, this this won't end well. But leverage can be used responsibly. Correct. So I, I don't know exactly how they're doing it, but I'm just saying like leverage in and of itself is not always like a, okay, a and death it, note. So it's, it's kind of like a, I guess it's kind of like a risk parity. Like it actually says the allocations are at 70% to bonds, 30% to stock. So obviously the leverage will be coming on the fixed income side to get that interest rate higher. And then the underlying is, so it says the NASDAQ 7 handle index is composed of the Dorsey Wright Explore portfolio and the core portfolio. And I'm not sure exactly what that is. But a quote from the article is, the distribution is not a dividend. It's a consistent payout that investors can rely on. All or part of the distribution may consist of a return of capital. So that means if dividends, fixed income, and capital gains don't pay the fund distribution, it may be funded by the capital investors pay in. So if I had to guess, I don't think this is going to be a big hit. But I don't think it's a terrible idea if you have to sort of trick investors into returning their own capital. Like I think that's one of the reasons why annuities, even if they're not the greatest products on earth, people it's like it's it's really powerful psychologically. The funny thing is you wonder how many people will get that seven percent and then just reinvest it. Like getting back to the point of letting go of control, like how many investors are actually going to use that as spending or if they're just going to just continue to to invest it. In their in their funds and, and and not even use it for the way it's supposed to. I also think that just generally speaking, when people see a new idea, the first the knee jerk reaction is like it sounds really smart to shit on everything. Yes, but I don't know. I don't think it's like the worst idea I've ever seen. Yeah, it's it, obviously it, it's kind of comes down the devils and the details and can they pull it off? But and if you're optimistic on something, it, it makes yourself vulnerable to being dunked on later, <laughs> right? Like there's no there's no downside to saying something stupid and then it works out, right? Yeah. So I don't. I honestly, except for Krugman on the internet, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I'd, yeah. That was that was just a little. So there was a good one by Cliff Asens this week at AQR. We, we talk about Cliff a lot, but he, I think he's probably the the best quant out there in terms of communication and writing and he, he's just really good and he kind of did a little bit of introspection in a piece for AQR this week and it was about two it was about two studies from his own team and they kind of called into question a lot of the stuff that he's held high for a lot of years and one of them was the cape ratio and maybe it doesn't have as much predictive power even over the long term as people thought and another one is about the small cap effect and re- whether small cap stocks really do outperform over time. Yeah, I think, that, I mean, there is a ton of nuance in here. I don't think that I can be convinced that on average, high valuations lead to lower average returns. But as we've seen recently, I think that it's ridiculously difficult to act on that. So I think like preparing yourself mentally for lower returns is always a good thing. And uh, if you're pleasantly surprised that we haven't for the last year, it's great. But I think that just generally speaking, at, like the more you pay for a future stream of earnings, the less you're going to receive. So actually, Asnes spoke at a conference I was at. This must have been 2010, 2011, probably. And he looked at all the numbers and because they do a lot of work on this. And he said, listen, we're in the 95th percentile of CAPE ratios. Mm-hmm. This, is, this is not a good place to be. And six or seven years later, stocks have done great. So it is, it's really hard to use them even over a period like that, where it's not that... It, that's a decently long-term period, I guess you could say, six or seven years. And I think 
Cliff said something that like what would give him pauses if you were in the 105th percentile. And obviously that's tongue-in-cheek because that does not exist. But he's saying like it would have to be so over the top before he would maybe say, all right, uh, it doesn't make sense to invest here. And I'm putting words in, in his the, mouth. And the takeaway here, the, my part was he said, I think it's a very healthy thing if we, not just AQR, but the investment field, continue to question all the old results, not accepting anything as canon. Which well, I think I think we do that. Like Not to pat ourselves on the back, but we say all the time that like there have only been three – 30-year non-overlapping periods of which we have good data. Right. Right. That's not – I mean it's just – and I think Jason uh, Zweig said this, that the past is N equals 1. Yes. Right? That's all we got. Right. So it, take everything with a, with a big grain of salt. Yes. There are no if-then rules in the markets. There, there's, there's no models that can forecast exactly what's going to happen. But if the Dow closes below 24,000 today, watch out. By the way, I think we also need to talk about the fact that you use your life events – in terms of where the Dow was. <laughs> so last night at dinner, you said that your your son was born at Dow... 19,000. Dow 19,000. I, I made that up. It's okay. just a joke. I don't really know what, where the Dow was when yes. he was born. But we had a really good idea. Instead of but Mi- I do know where Amazon was. Yes. Instead of Michael measuring his son's height on the wall in his house, he's going to measure it by Dow, Dow points. If the Dow is not above 40,000 by the time he's 10 years old, I will consider myself a failure as a parent. <laughs> That's pretty true. All right, so Jack Vogel wrote a similar post to to Cliff, just um, talking about trusting the process with reference to Sam Hinkie and uh, what he did with the 76ers. And it's really great. We won't really get into all the details, but we'll link to it in the show notes. But one of the things that he, that Jack showed that surprised me um, was that value has a much higher standard deviation than momentum strategies. Did, did you know that? I did. I would have assumed momentum would because especially when there's a turn, momentum stocks, like the volatility just kind of kills you. So no, I I had not seen this. So he showed the S and P five hundred, and then the value and value stocks and high momentum and value by a large amount. It's it's like what thirty percent higher maybe. Then side note, let me just jump in here for a sec. So when I was trading and I was shorting stocks and whatever whatever I was doing, but I was much more likely to short a winner. Right okay. to like try and pick a top to short Amazon to oh, short okay. something that was going up because by valuation. Right, but if I had to do it over, I would think that shorting value stocks is a much right like because a lot of the, none of these no no stock wants to be value, right? Value <laughs> is thrust upon them because they're busted businesses and people are selling them for good reasons. So I would much rather going forward, I would much rather short a stock that's on the fifty-two week low list than on the fifty-two week. Well, now list. that now that I think about it, I guess maybe the reason behind the fact that momentum has lower valuations is because you have more turnover and so you're cutting your losers quick and so that decreases the valuation whereas with value you're you're really holding for the long term you have to just sit through all that stuff so yeah shorting uh value on like an intermediate term time frame or doing the opposite and by the way let me also point out that me saying that i would short value sounds very toppy <laughs> yes all right the growth trade is over it's time for value to take the baton let's go value all right so sticking with cape ratio and bloggers and Economic picked did this really good post about how the trailing 12-month – and this is a study that Vanguard did. The trailing 12-month predictability is actually much higher than probably people would have thought. Yeah, did you he, see this? Yeah, so the, I, I had not seen the, the Vanguard one until he mentioned it. But So a lot of people use, again, back to what Cliff was talking about, the CAPE ratio as a way to figure out how stocks are going to do. And actually, they found that there was actually a pretty good relationship between the CAPE and just the trailing 12-month PE ratio, which a lot of people say – is kind of noisy in such short term that it really wouldn't have much predictive power, but it's actually closer than people would think. So did you say, I might be repeating what you just said because I spaced out for a second, but did you say that the, the correlation of 
trailing 12 month and cape was very high more or less okay yeah and then it, it dropped off after the great financial recession and really after the dot-com bubble i suppose and it hasn't been uh hasn't held up since and he's got a chart in here that shows the cape ratio versus the trailing 12 month pe ratio and they're pretty close over time actually there, there was a huge spike in early 09 because there was basically no earnings in the S&P 500 after all the bank write-downs and such. So that kind of, if you would have looked at the trailing 12-month P.E. ratio, it would have been like 150 or something. And anyone would have said, you would have probably said, let's short the market on valuation. Oh, and, def- <laughs> uh, absolutely. But it, it, was, it didn't make sense. And it immediately, a few months later, dropped back down and came back down to earth. But there, I probably would have been shorting on double dip years. <laughs> yeah, that's true. So yeah, it's... Again, there, there, there's no easy model or way to put this, but this is an interesting piece for investing nerds who want to kind of go through these different valuation models. Yeah, so cool. Estimize in the news. They So Lee Drogan created this company called Estimize. He was actually at our EBI East Conference in New York last, last year. He's a really sharp guy. And it's kind of interesting. He actually said he built the idea from Estimize around Philip Tetlock's work, who, if you haven't read that book, Super Forecasters, he's done probably more work than anyone over the past 20 or 30 years on the, the forecasting ability of experts. That was a memorable book for me. His, some of his books, he's written three or four books and they're all really good. And his whole thing is just the fact that experts are, they're, it's basically a coin flip between so the people who are experts on geopolitics, economics, the markets. They're not very good at predicting the future. And what Lee decided to do with Estimize is get as many con- contributors as, as he can for investors and asset managers and they try to do like earnings releases and they put different weights on the people who make these guesses and if if someone is does well over time they're weighted more highly in the model and it's actually been shown what does it say the estimates are 15 percent more accurate than consensus measures than just taking what everyone else says as a whole through through estimize yeah it's a killer idea and it seems to be working out really well for the company and for uh, people that are using the product and it's kind of gets back to the I think a few weeks ago you mentioned taking the average, right, of the of the different people in the class when Greenblatt was trying to explain how the market works. If you just take a single estimate from one person, it, it doesn't really help you that much. But if you take the collective whole, and he, what he's done is take that whole, but then try to weight it in a different way for people who have actually shown an ability to to know what's going on in these in, in these stocks. Yep, and spe- and sticking with wisdom of the crowd. So Drew Dixon, who uh, is on Twitter at Albert. Bridge Capital, I believe, wrote something that was sort of similar to this. He wrote, how many buy side and sell side analysts need to do the work before information is being assimilated by the consensus marginal investor? Upton Sinclair once wrote, it is difficult to get a man to understand something when a salary depends upon his not understanding it. And it is true, most investors and analysts don't want to hear the following, but it is at least possible that it doesn't take many investors at all or much capital to fully assimilate information into a stock price. The whole... Sell side analyst world was pretty bizarre to me. That's what I, I had my first taste of the investing world there. And I, I interned when I was in, a senior in college at a sell side analyst shop. And this is the kind of place where each analyst has one or two industries they cover. And they know everything there is to know about these individual companies. They meet with company management. They're constantly on the road. They're going to conferences. And then all of their buy and sell signals are horrible. They know everything there you could ever want to know about a company. So it ends up being the fact that they don't want to put a sell company a sell on one of these companies because that's where they're getting all their good information from. And so the the signals aren't really that helpful, but the information might be because they actually do have a the ear of some of these corporate management, even though the in, information has to be disseminated to everyone these days. But it's what I always found is that when you get 
in such a small niche like that that they have no like idea there's no there's nothing to compare it to so there's no relative way to look at the world so they're just looking at this one space and they're not thinking about the rest of the world and so i think a lot of times they they have like blinders on when they're when they're thinking of these companies and industries what's the point (laughs) (laughs) wait is there a point there no the point is that i think you can you can almost get too specialized with these things sometimes in terms of like he's saying there's so many of them that they almost end up becoming not that helpful well i took it as like people are worried about price discovery and stuff but he's saying that i think that it doesn't really take that many buyers and sellers to set you know relatively accurate prices right and um so i think that the fears about price discovery are so overblown like amazon for instance trades on average 4.7 million shares every single day how wrong i mean obviously we could look back in in 12 months 24 months from now and say that the price today was wrong but in real time it's really hard and Think about like the real estate market, and maybe this is a bad example, but how many buyers and sellers does it take to come to an agreement on real estate? And how many comps are in the neighborhood? I don't right. know, 30 houses? If that, yeah. And none of them are the same. <laughs> it's, yeah, it is kind of... And if you read some of the historical books in the market that we read, you read about in the 20s and 30s how there was 10 million shares being traded a day or something. And I mean, it's, it's constantly gone up over time. And that's always the funny one to me is that people say like, this rally doesn't count because it's on low volume. Like, what does it what does it matter how many trades there are in a certain day versus the market, the direction of the market? Why should that Why should that matter? So Toby Carlisle shared a really interesting tweet, an article, and here is a quote. So this is talking about medicine. Placebo effects rode on the coattails of a more important issue: regression to the mean, and that is most sick people get better eventually. This is true both for diseases like colds that naturally go away and for diseases like depression that come in episodes which remit for a few months or years until the next relapse. People go to the doctor during times of extreme crisis when they're most sick. sick uh, so no matter what happens, most of them will probably get better pretty quickly. This was a stunning sort of revelation, I thought. Well, yeah. The idea is it's, it's not necessarily that pl- the placebo effect works. It's the fact that most people get better, right? Yeah. But don't you th- do you think that there is a mental component there at all that when you give someone medicine that it if it changes their you don't think that that Yeah, maybe. I have no idea. I'm not a lawyer, but that's a joke. <laughs> hey. <Hey-o. laughs> I just thought that that was that this was really interesting that the placebo is nothing the placebo effect is nothing more than the regression to the mean. This is like such a sort of like well, of course it is, right? Right. There's so many there's so many examples like this where it was that was the kind of thing that Kahneman figured out with the fighter pilots, right? Yes, exactly. It, it, it was just that the ones who did really well on one day they'd come back down to earth the next, and it was yeah. It had nothing to do with how aggressively the uh, instructor was chastising them, right. for their failures. It was just they came back down to the average, yeah, or or conversely went back up to it. Yes. So, so let's move on to something more important. Yes. How about this survey? Yes. We had another survey. We can include this one in the show notes. And this was from S&P? State Street. State Street? Okay. And they wanted to know the top concerns of investors. And the top one is geopolitical international trade tensions. I feel like this could also just be like jitters. Yeah. Right. And the, but the funny thing is, is that, that the investor's top concern, the second one, is the end of the U.S. equity bull market. So of of course, they're, one of their top concerns is losing money. Or this might be a, the paradox of choice because there's a lot of things in here that are overlapping. Yeah, it's so like there there's listen to these different categories that are all sort of similar: a yield curve inversion, uh, an increase in inflation, the bursting of the bond bubble. The funny thing to me is that the one at the very bottom is spread widening and an increase in issuer def- defaults. Okay, so we could just 
bucket all this into Fed manipulation. Yes, but but how many investors do you really think understand what spread widening means? Well, this one that chose it is quite worried. <laughs> the one, the one person, Michael Santoli. Great tweet. Netflix now has a market value of 175 billion dollars. The stock would have to surge another 28 percent to match AOL's peak market cap of $224 billion in early 2000. AOL then had half the revenue and one-fifth the subscribers Netflix has now. There's crazy, and then there's crazy. So I really love making the comparisons to the dot-com bubble. Maybe too much, and I think I understand the, like, the people that say that, and I do agree with this, that just because we're not in the biggest bubble of all time, does not mean that stocks are not expensive. It is hard to like people anchor to that because it's so fresh in our minds, but like we'll probably never get back to something that crazy. I mean, it may be in something else, but the fact that, I mean, that was such a crazy time and so much was happening with technology. And I mean, just the the sheer numbers. Here's a good one that I sent to you last week. So from 1995 to the top in 2000, Intel, Cisco, Microsoft, and Oracle went from $82 billion to $1.8 trillion. And right now, they're, they're, they're still below that peak. Um, but that's a 2,150% advance, which is 81% a year. Right? Nuts. So I think that... Uh, the comparisons, again, might be a little bit silly because one has nothing to do with the other. Stocks can easily go down 40% from where we are, just and, and even if they're not as wildly valued as they were back then. But uh, it does it, – it, I mean, I don't know. I like the perspective. And you know, you know what? I'm not afraid to say it. It makes you feel a little bit better. Does it not? <laughs> that we're not to 99 levels yet? <laughs> I take comfort in it. That's what you're hanging your hat yeah, on? Assuming. But the, I mean, the thing is, like, I agree. Like, just because we're not there doesn't mean the markets can't get hit. But it also means, like, when they do get hit, that doesn't mean they're gonna. There's gonna be a bunch of zeros or ninety percent crashes like there was back then. So the, there was higher highs back then and lower lows than we'll probably see when we get the shakeout this time. A Gallup poll showed. Uh, it says, "How likely is it that you will ever be rich?" And it's sort of uh, what you would expect in the age cohorts: eighteen to twenty-nine, thirty to forty-nine, fifty to sixty-four, sixty-five plus. It decreases dramatically. So fifty-two uh, percent of eighteen to twenty-nine-year-olds think they're going to be rich. It's all, and it was total number of adults was like a third too. I think they're going to be rich, which is, it, this doesn't seem to make sense, but it's, yeah. It, the funny thing is, is that 10% of people that 65 plus think they're going to be rich. Like, don't you think those are people that are already rich? Probably. Like when you get to that yeah, age, hope springs eternal. are you really holding out hope? Wasn't it Colonel Sanders? He started KFC at like age 60 or something. Did he? It was pretty late. Uh, Bogle started the index fund at 49, I believe. Was he? Yeah. Okay. You read my book? Hello. Right <laughs> to Ben. So Ponzi schemes, they will never, ever not be around, unfortunately. And this one is particularly disgusting. I guess they all are. Um, so I went to the SEC complaint, and Picaretto met with an investor from Austin, Texas in February 2015. Because the investor suffered from dementia and was nearly 80 years old at the time, his daughter attended the meeting as well. Picaretto convinced the elderly investor to put $250,000 in percipients, described it as a real estate investment. And you know what happens next. The money was never invested into anything. And man, there are just scumbags all over the place. Imagine sitting across from an 80-year-old with his 25-year-old daughter in the room and uh, 
or not 25 year old however old his daughter it doesn't matter just what i know it's the thing is people who make these types of promises and, and you feel bad because a lot of a lot of times i think it's it's not just that people latch onto stories and promises it's the fact that people just don't understand how this stuff works like if it sounds too good to be true it probably is like a lot of people just don't get that and the first per, the first good salesperson they find that sounds remotely smart they hand their money over to them which is yeah it, it'll there'll always be a place for hucksters and charlatans in this world because People, especially with money, it's it just seems easy to, to prey on people's... And people want to be lied to. Yes. So there was an article in the Wall Street Journal this week about from Chuck Jaffe about personalized index funds. And I actually heard about this too on a recent podcast with Meb Faber and Matt Hogan, who was the guy who was, who's from Inside ETFs. And they were kind of talking about what is what comes after ETFs. Like ETFs aren't the final frontier. There's obviously going to be... <laughs> what? Sorry. So Phil tweeted a picture last night. It said, dinner last night did not suck. And then some guy goes, looks like it did for the dude at the far end of the table on the right. Is that me? That's you. Oh, I was having a tough time. (laughs) They caught you in a candid moment. So we had dinner in Laguna Beach last night, and it's probably one of the most beautiful places on earth. And... Yeah, I don't know. I was looks like I was in an introspective moment, but <laughs> you're just you're taking it all in. All right, all right sorry. Personalized index. Where points. was I? Yeah. See, this is what happens when we do a podcast in the same room. You're all over the place. Yeah. I sorry. Rain you in. Um. So they they talk about personalized index funds and the fact that that's the that's like the next the, the next thing that's going to come for investors and it'll be easier than ever to ha- just go through and create your own rules. And so if you wanted to do some screening for like an ESG or certain types of companies, or companies that have more women on their board, or whatever it is, you could create your own index fund rules and have that be, you know, as, as much or as different as, as much as alike or different as you want from the actual index. Yeah, I kind of like this. I mean, not that I think that investors, individual investors are going to like, you know, create individual alpha or anything like this, but it's just amazing what, what we are able to do today. So Ken Fisher this morning said, amongst many things that he said, <laughs> one of the things he said was to just to get one screen ran on the New York Stock Exchange in the seventies cost twenty five grand. Yeah, which is which is bonkers. And yeah. now you could do that on it's so easy. or probably any piece of software. I think Motif was the one who first kind of started this, right? Where you could create your own basket of stocks. Yeah. And I guess it does make sense. My I think it's kinda of cool that you, you will be able to do this someday. And and I and I don't see why it won't happen because it's so much easier to trade fractional shares and it might lead to a little bit more complexity, but I think I wonder what's going to happen or how often people will be able to pull these levers and change, make changes because anytime you change from the index, you're obviously going to have some tracking error and people are going to see, well, wait, I probably shouldn't have done this. I'm going to go back and change it and see what happens. Yeah, I don't know if the negative reinforcement actually helps people. I think a lot of people just like it just the light bulb never goes comes on. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the, the paradox of choice thing comes into play where if there's so many different choices they can make and changes that they'll, they'll be constantly tinkering and pulling levers when something doesn't work out in their favor that it could but i think the fact that it's going to be available i think is is probably i mean it there's just so much good things for investors these days yeah all right let's get to the listener questions i just finished reading joel greenblatt's little book that beats the market and would like to hear your thoughts on his magic formula providing of course you know what i'm talking about we do uh maybe that's where michael could stick his newfound cash after selling his gold too soon (laughs) (laughs) i forget what the exact formula is but it's it's you know, it's value. It's sort of similar to what... Well, it's more or less high quality with high ROIC, high return on invested capital, and low... I think he uses like the price to EBITDA, or okay. one of those sort of private equity-like value strategies. So I have no doubt that this 
will uh, that this is a, an adequate way to invest for the next forty years. I think that it's just like any other strategy. It's probably not practical that you're going to stick with it, which is why we advocate for diversifying not just across asset classes but across strategies as well. Because whatever you're doing, even the most died in the wall value investors are probably feeling the pain right now. And this is this, this, I love this book by the way. I think he provides one of the better explanations of like how businesses work. And yeah, book, he's he he's like um Buffett in the sense that he's he he's thinks really about businesses good. not not the stock price. But he actually wrote about this or talked about this before and he said he created this screen from the little book that beats the market it finds the har- highest ROIC companies it finds the lowest valued companies and I think you're supposed to turn them over once a year. And you so you pick the bottom you pick the bottom 25 whatever you want and he he had people asking him after a few years, like, hey, that's great. You created this screen. Just do it for me because I don't want to buy these myself and I can pick through the list. And what happens, and they actually found that the people that just took the bottom 25 instead of going through the whole list of 50 and picking their own out did better than the ones who like went through and tried to pick and choose. And I think even he said he tried to pick and choose. And I think there was a biotech company or something like that where he thought it was a value trap and it went out to have enormous returns or, or maybe I'm getting that that opposite. Right. So but if you're going to do something that's a screen or quantitative one, you got to stick to the screen. It's better to just not overthink it do and not, try yeah, to tinker with it. it. It's just, yeah, just stick with it. But again, I'm just, I just don't think that it's practical. Like Jim O'Shaughnessy tweeted recently that you can, or he actually was talking to George Parks, said you can scream the secret sauce from the top of the buildings and nobody will listen to you. Right. Or the other, we won't be able to stick with it or something else will come along. Yeah, you could give it away. It just doesn't matter. Behavior, behavior, behavior. So maybe someone can create their own personalized index fund using the magic formula. Yeah. How's that sound? Okay, one more question. My fascination and career close to the debt capital markets always makes me wonder why debt isn't talked about more in personal investing. Specifically, I totally feel like it makes sense to have high, le- high levels of leverage in the accumulation phase of one's investing life and then declining leverage levels over time. So this person wants to know if we think it makes sense to lever up your investments as a young person. Well, finishing the question, he said, I found this book about this recently and read it. Basically, it advocates for buying leaps on the S&P 500 or using max leverage in a low-cost brokerage account, like interactive brokers early on in one's investing cycle. Uh, Not the worst idea I've ever heard. Again, it comes back to, can you actually stick with it and hold and, and how much leverage do you use? And could you survive the occasional margin call when, when markets get destroyed. Right, there, like it's, I guess this all comes back to there are a million ways to skin the cat. And there's a lot of really reasonable ideas that we just can't execute on because we lack discipline. And, and I mean, there are pieces from academics that say they try to make this point of young people should be able to take on more risk and, and lever up a little bit because they have such a long time horizon. I just, I guess it depends on the, uh, on the person in a lot of ways, but it, that's a tough, that's tough to do. So one of the tweets that I saw this week that was really great is from Quanshin1. Sock Gen Global Alpha Index Highlights. One, proprietary blend of trend, valuation, and premium harvesting alpha. Two, covers every global asset class, equity vol, FX, commods, rates, credit. Three, strategy backtest showing a 50% annual, uh, I'm sorry, 50% plus Kager. And then since launch, the product had an actual Kager of negative 1%. And this is what comes back to, I always say the worst 10-year performance for any back test is the next 10 years. It is kind of crazy. They sh- it sh- we'll p- include a picture of this in the show notes, but they show the line where it stopped, and it, it just looks like the most beautiful equity curve leading <laughs> up to it, and then nothing. And yeah, like, th- and there are, no, th- there are no bad back tests, right? No, of course not. Th- there's not a back test. The back test graveyard is, is enormous because you just get rid of those and don't show them. What's, what's your line? There's no such thing as a front test? Yes. 
Although, I don't know if I stole that from somebody. I feel like I did. Okay, that's possible. Well, we'll, we'll copyright that one. Okay. All right, any good, all right. now, so we're at the EBI West Conference and Dana Point, like we said. I think we'll take next week to share some thoughts because we're about halfway through the conference now yeah. and talk about some of our favorite speakers. Ken Fisher was character, I would say, more than I thought. Very unconstrained. We'll talk about him next week and all the other panels and what we've been doing out here. And we're going to tape our own live Animal Spirits this afternoon, we're still kind of trying to decide whether we want to put it out there as a podcast or not. Let us know what you think about that. This is going to be very visual, so we're not sure. But that's something we're still playing around with. So, all right, what do you got for recommendations this week? Somebody recommended to me the Scarlet Women of Wall Street, which is what the Erie Railroad used to be referred to. And I'm not sure if I would recommend it. It's heavy, 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 dense market history. But for people that are interested in that sort of thing, it talked about the history of Jay Gould and Jim Fisk and Daniel Drew and Cornelius Vanderbilt. And I didn't really know much about them. So there was, I certainly got a lot out of it, but it wasn't the easiest to read. Okay. There was a really good article from Rusty Gwynn, I believe is his name, talking about mental toughness in the financial markets. I thought that was really, really good. I watched the Bill Simmons thing on HBO. Oh, for the NBA Finals? Yeah, I think it was called Courtside or something like that. Was it any good? If you like basketball, yeah. Uh, so one of my favorite parts was when he spoke to Mike Breen, talking about that shot that Durant made, in the th- I think it was in the third quarter, that crazy shot that he had done in the exact same spot in Game 3. And Bill Simmons said, like, what was the call? And uh, Mike Breen sort of couldn't remember. And it was just it was really cool just to get a behind-the-scenes look and him talking to Durant after the game. I, I mean, I, I, I can't get enough of that stuff. And then lastly, Malcolm Gladwell had a podcast talking about immigration and all of that was brand new to me basically how a lot of the immigration is circular that they would particularly to mexico that they would come here and then they would return home and putting up borders has actually locked them in it's made them be unable to leave and if if there were no border controls and i'm not advocating one way or the other but he was just saying that there would be a third less mexican in the united states and they're basically trapped here that was interesting how before people would go or come over to do work or sell something and go back and now it's there's not as much free flow. So yeah, that was kind of interesting. So I got this week, Derek Thompson's Crazy Genius podcast I mentioned before, but he had one called Why Haven't We Found Aliens? That sort of blew my mind. Did you listen to this one yet? I did. And I don't know. I, I didn't love it. No? Okay. See, that kind of stuff just get, it gets into my head and I can't stop thinking about it. And so the idea is like, if there really is intelligent life form out there, maybe we'll never find them or they'll never find us because if you approach a certain point of technological progress, you end up uploading your brain into software. Oh I, it's weird. <laughs> it, it's worth, worth a listen. Um, so I actually listened to you on one of these recommendations and on the flight to California, I read, started reading rocket men about two thirds of the way through by Robert Curson. And I think you called this one pretty good. This is probably the, one of the best books I've read in a number of years. And it's about the Apollo eight mission. That was the first astronauts to ever go around the moon no one had ever encircled the moon and it was the the so everyone remembers neil armstrong stepping on the moon but these guys the three astronauts who did this neil armstrong and the other guys who land on the moon were their backups so these guys i mean these guys had to be some of the biggest badasses in american history right they were ultra smart they were like the top of their class and everything they they basically went into space flying on a rocket that had never been tested before it's just I highly recommend it. It's, it's really fascinating, and there, there's so many really good nuggets. Like they talk about the fact that these rockets need to go 17,000 miles an hour just to break through the Earth's gravitational pull. And a lot of the math behind it is 
they have to have the correct angle to sort of slingshot and rocket around the earth and the moon that like pushes their path. It's just, it's really fascinating to me how they figure this stuff out. Yeah. I think I said that after I read it, that, that was going to be the book of the year. I think I'm sticking with it. I mean, bad blood was amazing, but rocket men, there's uh, no, but rocket men was amazing. Absolutely. Absolutely recommend. And my only other one for TV is I started watching the show trust on FX. It was on a few months ago, but I DVR them all. And it's about the J Paul Getty family who, he was one of the. He, he, I think at one point he was the richest person in the world, and they. It's kind of a crazy eccentric billionaire family, and his grandson gets kidnapped, and it's just the whole story about that. And so it's based on true events. This guy, Jay Paul through. Getty, you like it? It's yeah. It started out really good, and it slowed down, and now it's picking up again. I'm halfway through, and I'm 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 enjoying it so far. He's got a great quote. My formula for su- for success is rise early, work late, and strike oil. <laughs> Sounds like, yeah. He was. The way they made him make him out to he was a really bizarre eccentric dude, but it's uh, it's it's pretty interesting. So, all right, I think that's all we have. We will try to share some thoughts on the conference from California next week. Send us an email, animalspiritspod at gmail dot com, and uh, thank you for listening.